Welcome to another episode. Listen, if you didn't check out last week's Judgment Has Begun, you need to listen to that, folks. It has begun. You are a believer. You are now the enemy in the United States of our government and so many people. Uh, That is not me saying that you need to rise up and fight the government, folks. That is me saying that you need to recognize the time we're in and the time is short and we have a job to do, and that's to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I know there are those who want to stand up and just fight. And we're going to win the battle, folks. You're not going to win the battle against the government. The Lord has not called us to that. He has called us to save the lost. That's our mission. Don't forget that. Don't get deceived in that. You know, if you really want to be in the Lord's army, we need to care about the lost. And that means we are willing to do whatever it takes to reach them with that redemptive message. And folks, we're going to talk about some exciting stuff tonight. And just another thing I want to say real quickly. Thank you so much for the subscriptions when you subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, Like us on Facebook. Um, I don't post much on Facebook. Honestly, I'm not a Facebook person. I don't even have a personal account on Facebook. Uh, but I do post on there. So if you like to, you know, like the page, I appreciate it. Uh, and subscribe to us. You know, if you notice, Remnant Call is a small show. Not, you know, we're not a big show here. And that's okay because I believe that the Lord has called forward this program. And just because we're not 100%, 100,000, excuse me, uh, subscribers plus or more, doesn't mean that this program isn't used in a mighty way. Because, folks, I would rather have one person turn their life to the Lord than sit there and fill thousands of people's minds full of nothing but garbage that is valueless when it comes to the kingdom and salvation of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua. And I'm telling you, at this hour, we need that truth, straight word that is unadulterated, that is preached without fear, and that is able to cut to the very quick uh, with the two-edged sword that not only does it cut, but it also heals with the two-edged sword. Uh, that's the power of God's word, and we want to keep that. And thank you for those who uh, who uh, support the Remnant Call ministry, I mean, ministry here. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I often tell people, I, I, I hate to even say thank you. Uh, we don't ask for any money, no nothing on this program. Program, but people give, and I just want to say thank you for that. But don't don't take that. I'm never asking for anything. So please, just go wherever God is putting on your heart to give. You do that. Give, find somewhere, find an orphanage, find some ministry that you can believe and trust it, and you give there. And and God will bless you because folks, don't ever forget. We need to return what belongs to God. And I know people, hey, you know, your Old Testament with paying your tithe. Uh, well, I will never change my mind and thoughts on paying tithe because I believe it is not only biblical, it stands for today, and we need to support those who are out in the front lines and on ministry sharing the good news. So folks, please find a ministry somewhere that you can support, and I'm telling you, give God what's His, He will take care of you. And it's just the way the Lord, it's the one promise in the Bible that you can actually test God on. Uh, If you haven't read it, just turn to the last chapter in the book of Malachi and look about opening the windows of heaven. It is a powerful, powerful word from the Lord. But tonight, I want to talk about deep mysteries. 
Uh, I had reached, talked about it before, and you know, just to be truthful, uh, folks, if, if this program isn't about something apocalyptic, it isn't about the news, it isn't about something, you know, the listenership I know goes down. So folks, if I'm just going to tell you right now, if all you want to hear tonight is the latest news and how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, we already know that. I just would direct you to uh, the any news channel pretty much right now, and you can find that out. Obviously not the mainstream, but you know, any other reputable news service. But if you want to hear tonight about deep mysteries, and I'm, I'm, we're going to start to go deep, and I'm going to do this in a two-part message, um, and we're going to focus on the deep mysteries in Ruth, because, folks, I'm telling you, this little book is so powerful, and not only powerful, but it is a right-now book. It contains so many deep, and I'm talking deep mysteries that I'm going to have to hold back and only go so deep because I don't have time. This is a the, the kind of study that can take hours and hours and hours to do, but we're going to condense it down uh, to what would normally take at least four to five hours uh, to, to go through this, this book. We're going to condense it down into two shorter shows uh, to share with you because this book is unbelievable. It is arguably, to me, in, in my opinion, one of the most powerful uh, stories and books in the entire Old Testament uh, because it's got things in it that are just, well, we're going to get to it. And here's the thing. If you don't listen to the first part, you're going to have to listen to the second part because you're going to get some answers to some stuff we're going to bring up in the first part, some actual unexplained mysteries uh, in the book of Ruth that literally uh, they cannot be explained. I'm going to tell you right now. The truth is, the book of Ruth is not only a love story, but is the power of redemption. And it is also a book of prophecy. Yes, Ruth is a book of prophecy. And it's also by some considered to be a key in understanding the book of Revelation chapter 5 specifically. When Jesus comes to open the scroll of se- that is sealed with seven seals, uh, some have called it the scroll of destiny. A scroll that is sealed by the Almighty that no one, not the 24 elders, uh, not the one of the four living creatures, Gabriel couldn't do it, the cherubim can't do it, only the Lamb of God, it says in Revela- Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says this, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It is the seal, the scroll of destiny. It is a book of redemption. And honestly, folks, this little book of Ruth, you are going to begin to see some things I would be willing to say most of you have never seen before. I'm going to ask if you'd pray right now with me. Father, in the name above every name, Yeshua, Jesus, we ask that you'd bless this broadcast bring forth truth, Lord. Not milk, Lord, but meat. Deep spiritual meat, Lord, that we may feast upon what you have in your word that will strengthen us and edify us and show us the mysteries of God that have been there all along. But through these two episodes revealed, revealed in a way we have never seen before is my prayer in Yeshua's name. Amen. This is a book that is commonly read in Judaism during the Feast of Weeks, leading up to Pentecost, 
when the time when the Lord poured out his spirit in fullness, we remember in, in the book of Acts, this book is read up to that time. When did Ruth take place? Well, it was during the time of the book of the Judges. The best guess by some scholars give is that the story took place sometime between 1105 uh, to 1085 BC. This would put the story about the time of that of Samson's rule as a judge and possibly right into the time of Samuel. Jewish tradition uh, places the author of this book as Samuel. Now, that's obviously just tradition found in the Talmud, uh, so it's not what we call source material, so take it as you will. Um, but that he would have been alive to have known the genealogy that was presented at the end of that book leading up to King David. So with that, let's jump into the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Malon and Chilon, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab, and it continued there. Now, if you look at the beginning of this story, the reason that they left was because of the famine that was in the land. They went over to Moab to try to find some relief for the things that were going on. The interesting thing is when you begin to look at the meaning of the people's names of the family right there of Elimelech, Naomi, and Malon, and, and Chilon, it's interesting their names. Elimelech means God is my king. That's a powerful, a powerful thing. Naomi means uh, pleasant. And um, Malon means to be sick or sickly, and Chilon is wasting or pining. And so here, here it's interesting looking at them that their children were just uh, basically a shadow of, of some sickness that was going on. Obviously, that you know that they were not healthy people. It seemed like to begin with. And so they went into the land of Moab. Now, if you remember Moab, Moab was the son. Uh, of an illegitimate child from Lot and his daughter after it was destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. They fled to the mountains. Um, listen, it's disgusting what happened, but I would guess in their defense, they literally believed that everybody had been destroyed off the face of the earth, and they basically got their dad drunk and had a child and because they thought everybody had been destroyed. Uh, that's just still sick and disgusting to me. But read the story, you can find out what that is. So they went to the land of Moab, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, verse 3, died, and she was left and her two sons, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. And Malon and Chilon died also, both of them, and the women, the woman was left of her two sons and her husband, uh, so here they are. They went to Moab to find relief. And instead of finding relief, they actually ended up finding death. She first loses her husband. Then she loses both of her children. And now she is stuck with two women from a country who God actually forbid them to even come into the land of the Israelites. So here's a man who God is his king takes his family over to a land 
of people that are not even allowed to come into the camp of Israel and marries and his children marry these women that are forbidden really to that should not even happen and now this woman instead of find relief she's lost everything and she's stuck with people who aren't even of her own faith and religion so the interesting thing is they left the Bethlehem now Listen to what it says here in verse 6 real quick. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Now she left Bethlehem. Now if you understand, to, and, and she heard now that God had returned bread back to Bethlehem. So if you understand what the meaning, the word of Bethlehem means the house of of bread. Isn't that interesting? The house of bread. Where did Jesus, Jesus, where was he born at? He was born in the house of bread. He was the bread from heaven born in the house of bread. Folks, that's not coincidence. There was no coincidence that Jesus, Yeshua, was born in the country or in the town, excuse me, that was called known for it being the house of bread, that the very bread from heaven comes down. It's unbelievable. And you start to begin to peek in to the depths of what we're going to explore in this book. You know, we are like the prodigal children so often who have lost everything. And, and it seems like Often when we lose things and we have things happen, we run to the wrong place. We go somewhere else to find our help. Maybe it's the land of Moab. And it seems like in the land of Moab, where we, when we're going to find some help because we need that, we end up, what? Losing everything. But finally in the clarity, God calls us back to the house of bread. And you know, it's interesting how I find so often, and you know this too, that you find the Lord right where you've left him. He's calling us back to the house of bread, to where we can eat from that bread that came from heaven. They left the house of bread because there was no bread. Could we run into the same issue in our churches and our fellowships today? People thinking everything is fine, I'm rich and in need of nothing, and yet God says to the church in Laodicea, I would say much of the church in America too. They were blind, poor, and naked. But this doesn't mean God gives up. The Bible says he saves the best wine for last. I feel like so often we are in that same position. We are just like the church in Laodicea, we are running for other places. We think we've got it all together, and the truth is we're empty. Verse 7, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return to her mother's house. The Lord dealt kindly with you, deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Now, I want you to pick this up because this is really important right here. 
Naomi sees that her daughter's wanting to leave, both of them, Orpah and and, uh, Ruth. But she says, go back home to your family and may the Lord. Now, this is the word Yahweh as she's using right now. Yahweh, may he bless you. She's saying, may the most high. She's using the holy name of the almighty Yahweh saying, may he bless you. Yes, I know you're from a foreign land and there's false gods there, but I need, I want the Lord Yahweh to bless you. That is some amazing, powerful words that she's saying there. And I want you to get this because what's coming up makes no sense. She's heartbroken. She wants them to give a good to live a good life and she reminds them that Yahweh is the one who blesses and not their false gods. That's amazing. Reading on though, listen to this. And they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, turn again my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having trouble? Would you stay for them for having, uh, from having husbands? Excuse me. Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of Yahweh is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So here she remembers, she's telling her daughters, Yahweh is the one who blesses. He's the one who will take care of you. He will bless you. That's good spiritual advice. But then she turns around and says, yeah, but the one I just said that blesses actually is not blessing at all. He's been against me. He's been, he's gone out against me. Folks, sometimes our emotions end up leading to some of the worst witnessing we can ever do because we forget in our own sorrows the goodness of who God is. It's so easy to witness to others and share with them, hey, God will take care of this. God will be the one there for you. Yahweh will be the one who will take care of you. But then all of a sudden when it happens to you, now Yahweh hates you. Now God doesn't love you anymore. Do you see the hypocrisy that so often when it happens to us, all the powerful words of faith that we've spoken to others are gone and we forget the goodness of what's going on. If we only understood what God was planning in this story from the beginning, Ruth, excuse me, Naomi would have had a total different outlook. But continuing on, I told you this didn't make sense. Listen to what she says. And she said, behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back. Now she's talking to Ruth. Unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Can you believe that? She just says to fault that Yahweh's the one who blesses. And she says, and then, so Orpah turns back 
after she kissed her mother-in-law and she goes back there home and she says, Naomi comes out and says she's returned to her people and she's returned to her gods. Now you go follow after her. How do you tell somebody one minute that's Yahweh who would take care of you? Oh, I'm sorry. My grief's too much. Go follow your false gods. Folks, I'm telling you the dangers of taking our emotions into our witness to remember that when you are in a bad time, be careful on what you say. I understand there's an honesty that God loves and he can handle when we talk to him honestly, but you can't come out one second and say, it's Yahweh who blesses and the other other side of your mouth come back and say, return unto your gods, your false gods. What hypocrisy. And we've been guilty so often of the same things. Maybe we haven't said return unto our false god unto your false gods, but folks, we've returned unto our false gods so often, trying to find help and comfort and solace when we should be heading back to the house of bread to be filled to be filled again. Terrible theology, blessing in the name of Yahweh, and then telling her to turn back and follow her gods. Verse 16, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where there diest, will I die. There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Wow. If you have never known about this verse, this verse is known as a sevenfold declaration. It's powerful. Look what she says here. The first declaration, for whither thou goest, I will go. She's like, I'm going with you. The second one, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. The third, thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and also if aught but death part thee and me. The power of a sevenfold declaration. And folks, she not only followed through with what she said, because she truly meant it from the bottom of her heart. And it was a witness unto all the people around in her areas. We're going to see the power of that sevenfold declaration that she kept. And I'm going to tell you, it shook the people in her land. Continuing on. Verse 18, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So here was Ruth pleading. She wanted to be with her mother-in-law. She wants to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. She wants to follow the Almighty and all Naomi can see in her own issues and offers some of the worst and most confusing theology ever to be said. I mean, Yahweh bless you and go back to your gods. This makes no sense. 
the confusion in telling her daughters that Yahweh would do this and then telling her literally to go back to the old gods that she was with is the worst theology in the world. You see, the Moabites' god was named Chemosh, which is also believed to be the same god worshipped by others known as Moloch, where they would offer sacrifices of babies and others for propriety. In essence, what she's really saying is, is that Yahweh, the one who she said first blesses, actually is going out against me. And she he will go out against people. But your false gods, the gods that the world today sacrifices their babies to, they're the ones that prosper you. Because see, if you understand abortion, you will understand one thing. That committing of abortion is nothing but sacrificing to Moloch, the god of prosperity. Because somehow this baby has hindered yours and my prosperity. Now folks, I've said it over and again on this program. If you've ever committed an abortion, God... God can forgive. It's okay. It's not okay that you've did it, but it's it's okay to understand that God can forgive and he will forgive. If you confess it and you and you ask him, he is faithful and just and he can cleanse your heart from that stuff. But the truth is, is that it is God, not Moloch, who gives prosperity. But when we witness, sometimes in our anger, we can end up giving up such confusing, crazy messages. Folks, I hear it all the time on these end-time programs on the internet, where sometimes they're talking some of the craziest things I've ever heard in theology. And one moment, they're talking about these great things in the end time, and who knows what, and the next minute, they're just going off, cursing on Christian programs, justifying their swearing, and and saying things that are just horrible. Folks, we need to be careful of our theology when we're witnessing for the Almighty. Verse 19. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? seeing the Lord hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Now, folks, this is some deep words that she is speaking here. She comes back into her hometown. The people see her. I'm sure they're excited. It's been a long time since they've seen her. At least we know a minimum of 10 years, maybe longer. But it's been, it, it's, it's been a while, and they see her, and they, hey, isn't that Naomi? Isn't that the pleasant one we know? Naomi, she's got a great name. And names were important back then because they reflected something. And she says, don't you dare call me pleasant. How dare you call me that? You see, I'm not pleasant. You call me Mara, bitter. That's what it means, bitter. You see, because the Almighty, now remember before, she's using the word Lord, Yahweh, all caps in the Old Testament. But here out of nowhere, she switches and says Almighty. And if you look up that word, it's El Shaddai which means provider. 
And what she is saying right here is an absolute slap in the Almighty's face. You see, she says this, call me not Naomi, call me not pleasant, call me bitter, for the provider, the Almighty, hath dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, and Yahweh hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing that Yahweh hath testified against me, and the Almighty, the El Shaddai, the provider, hath afflicted me. It, it means literally like the breast, the source, the provider is what El Shaddai means. And so here she is saying that you understand here, folks, the one that was supposed to provide failed to provide for me. She's angry. And these words that were spoken were fierce and directed right at El Shaddai for failing to do what she thought he was supposed to do if she only understood what was going to happen in this story, oh, she would have never cursed, not physical words of cursed, but she said some horrible things to the Almighty. I thank God he is more forgiving than we certainly are because some of the things we have said in our anger is atrocious. Why is God always blamed for everything. He was the first person blamed for sin in the Bible. Yes, he was. When he came to Adam in the garden and 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 he asked, you know, who is who has deceived you and all these things. So, you know, who who is who's tricked you and he, he's talking about what's going what just took place. And Adam says to God back, he says, "This woman that you gave me She's the one who did it. The first person that's blamed for sin in the Bible is God. El Shaddai, the provider, Yahweh. He's blamed for what is going on here instead of taking up responsibility for himself he blames the almighty she's the one that woman that you're the one who gave her to me she gave me this fruit to eat and when the truth was he was actually around eve close by the whole time if you read the story it says she took and she gave her husband was there with her read the story again Adam was not innocent, but he blamed God. And here Naomi is blaming the Almighty for failing to provide for her. So Naomi and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, verse 22, with her which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of, of the barley harvest. Now we're going to jump into chapter two, but just a few things, because I told you we're going to condense this uh, because honestly, folks, once we get to chapter four, it's going to start blowing your mind uh, because there's some things that are going to happen. And I'm going to give you a slight preview. Deuteronomy chapter 23, three says this, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. So here, the beginning of this powerful story starts off with something that's forbidden to happen. 
Ruth is a Moabitess. She's not even to come in to the congregation of the Lord. For 10 generations, they're not allowed in. And you know what's going to happen later in this book. We're talking about the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. We're going to get into that because you know what? It's an illegal marriage. It is not legal. It's forbidden. How could God allow this to happen? How could God allow this uh, Moabitess to come in and then at the end to end up in the Messiah's lineage? You know, the... (laughs) You know, one thing, just a side note, thank the Lord. His lineage is so scandalous. It gives me hope that he can save anybody. I mean, think about the Lord's lineage. Rahab, the harlot, remember from Jericho? We've got Tamar, who had, you know, relations with her father-in-law, who posed as a, as a widow, uh, or posed as a prostitute. And, and then we've got um, Ruth the Moabitess, uh, who was uh, condemned for 10 generations, and Bathsheba, uh, who King David lusted after Uriah's wife. I mean, look at the absolute scandal in the Messiah's lineage. And I'm telling you, hallelujah, I say for this, because the Lord can save anybody. And I praise God that he takes the low scum of this earth, which the people deem is unredeemable, and he brings them to redemption. Hallelujah. I praise the Almighty for his lineage because it shows that he can use anybody no matter what place they've been in life and they turn around to him, he can use them. Hallelujah. I thank God for it. Folks, you're going to find out as we get into the into this book that everything that I said is forbidden, which it was. That's not supposed to happen. You're going to find out that God had some deep mysteries in that he never broke his word, nor the things that he said promises ever, not once. He kept them all. Even when he said this was forbidden, you're going to be blown away when we get to the end and we find out what was written in his word. There are some things that are going to be unbelievable. But I want to make this last note as before we get into chapter two here, folks, is this. Think about it. They went from Bethlehem to Moab. They left God's given place, kind of like the church, and they journeyed out into the cursed land, the forbidden people, those that were in the world, and brought back the cursed for redemption, which we're going to see in Ruth. But not all will come like Orpah. Some will turn back to their gods. We need to remember, it's when we are in our darkest place that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, ends up showing up. Starting into chapter two, and folks, I'm going to try to move this along. I told you this is a lot of teaching. I'm trying to shorten it, not go into all the parallels and all the deeper things uh, because it's just too much time. Uh, for for this program right here. But Ruth chapter 2, we're going to finish this program at the end of chapter 2 tonight, and we're going to have a second part of this that's going to be coming out. And I'm going to tell you, you do not want to miss this because what happens in the last chapter of this book is absolutely mind-blowing. 
I remember the day the Lord began to open my mind. I was at a fellowship, worshiping with some people about 30 minutes away from here. Um, back, you know, I live already out in the middle of nowhere. They're farther back in. And, and the Lord began to open my mind and show me the deep mysteries in this book. And it was unbelievable. Ruth chapter two and verse one says this, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech and his name was Boaz. You see, Boaz was on her husband's side, Elimelech's son and our side. And if you look at Boaz's name, it, it means in him is strength. It's interesting that the two pillars of Solomon's temple, Jochen means he will give certainty. And the other one was called uh, um, Boaz. In him is strength. So he will give certainty or he will establish strength. Isn't that powerful? Think about it. When we were, when we enter into God's temple, which now the Lord actually dwells within us, it means that when he sets up his pillars within inside of us, he will give strength. He will give us certainty. He will establish us. It's powerful. And Ruth in verse two, and the Moabite is said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go, my daughter. Now you see the law of the gleaning was a very important thing that people would always remember to take care of the poor. It's too bad we have forgotten today God's command that we would take care of the of the poor. Leviticus 19, uh, 9 through 10 says this, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean the, thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord. Uh, let me give you one more verse about this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, 21 and 22 says this, when thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, and thou shalt Remember that thou hast bondmen, that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. It's interesting. God's here saying that when you are in your field and you're working there and you're trying to do your business, that you need to remember one thing's for sure. You are to not glean, meaning if you're cutting down your field and stuff falls to the ground by the wayside, let it there. When you go around the corners, don't cut them tight. Leave a large piece of the corners of your property so that the poor and the stranger, meaning those who aren't even of your faith, let them come and partake in this. You see, so often I know people who they don't want to do any type of outreach. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to take care of the homeless and the poor unless they think that they can convert somebody right there. Uh, my wife and I have worked in the homeless shelters for years. And I, I, my friend Todd that used to be on the program a lot. He's been busy, but I'll see him tomorrow. He's, we sleep down at the shelters together and, and take care of the homeless and poor. And, and, and we share the good news with them. But if they don't decide to follow the Lord, that doesn't mean that we don't continue to serve and we don't serve only knowing that they're going to give their lives to the Lord. Unfortunately, there are church people who don't want to come down and help unless they think that they can get a convert. It's very sad, but God is very, very clear here. We are to witness and to share and to give even to those who may not care two hoots about God. We are to share with them. 
And we are to remember the law of the gleaning. You know, God cares about the poor a lot more than about the rich. Did you know that? Yes, he does. Because even a rich man, if he's godly, he'll be poor in spirit. I mean, he'll be humble in his heart. He will not be proud and full of himself. Verse 3, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was light was too light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. L- literally what this means when it says that her hap was to light upon a field, it means that she just happened to stumble on this part of the field. And out of all the fields she could have stumbled on, she happened to stumble on Boaz's field. Folks, we can already see the supernatural design of what's going on in this book. This is orchestrated from heaven, what's happening right now. And maybe only Naomi can see the bitterness of what's going on, but Ruth right now is actually completely in the very will of God. She didn't just stumble by accident. This is God. Yes, she happened upon it, but she happened upon the one land where God wanted her to be at. I do not believe in coincidence when you follow the Lord. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless thee. Hallelujah. Boy, we forgot so often to bless our brothers and sisters. The Lord bless you. We, always, we, we don't even greet people, right? Anymore. That's another subject. I'm not even getting on to that. Then said Boaz unto his servant, What that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Now, it's interesting. Boaz does his normal walk in, and something catches Boaz's eye right at this point. We can see. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitess damsel that came back and Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves so that she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So here he's coming by. He sees this woman. He's like, excuse me, hold on a second. Uh, Who's that? Verse 8, then... After they told him, Boaz, unto Ruth, this is what he says. Hearest thou not my daughter? Hearest thou not my, uh, not my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast as my maidens. As you're going to see in this book, Boaz is like a type of Messiah, a type of Jesus, right? And, and just like God, he, he's representing, and, and Ruth is like the, the church, the, the, the bride who's, who's been out wayward and, and they're coming home, right? And he says, don't, don't go somewhere else. Don't go after any other gods. Don't go try to get fed somewhere else. You stay here. You stay at my place. You stay around my maidens, my people. And this is where you go. I I just start to see the pictures of the Lord right here. When we're coming in, we're desperate, we're hungry, we need something, and we come and we begin to partake once again. And God says, "Don't you don't need to go anywhere else now. You're home with me. You stay right here. Verse 9, Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? 
And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself down to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And I, you see this picture of salvation starting to be painted here. Grace on the forbidden, on the outcast, on the cursed thing. The sense of unworthiness that we all feel so often, like the woman who was, who was cast down in, in Jesus' feet, or the, the one that, that, that wiped her tears uh, with her hair because she had been forgiven for so much. The sense of unworthiness, and yet the call to come and feed and heal. And, and, and look at Boaz on the human side too, right? I mean, think about this. I see the picture of, of salvation from this deep insight from the Lord, but I also see the humanness of Boaz. He's in love. She's beautiful. And I mean, he's, he's starting to strut here a little bit. As we call it, he's peacocking here, right? He's starting to show his tail feathers. He's saying, listen here, let me, let me tell you something. I don't, you don't have to go after anything. Uh-uh, you stay right here. And, and, and if you need a drink, I got you taken care of. I'll make sure my men are instructed to take real good care of you. He's showing off that he's the man and he's in charge. He wants her to know that he has got this thing because he's already falling in love. You know, the Messiah loves us. He cares about us so much for the prize that was laid up before him. He was willing to endure the sufferings of the cross. Because of the gift of you and I that he loved so much, that we were so valuable in his eyes that he was willing to go all the way through the worst punishment that any human had ever suffered in history. He was willing to do it because he was madly in love with us in such a godly, holy way that nothing could stop him. And here, Boaz is the same way. The only difference is there's some flesh wrapped in with Boaz, and he's trying to strut himself around. He's trying to show who he is. Man, guys, we've done it before in the past. We want the women to know we're in charge. We got you. And I just appreciate the human side of Boaz. In verse 11, and Boaz answered and said unto her, it hath fully been showed me. Because remember, she's broken. Why would you have such mercy? Why would you care about me? Have you ever felt like that with the Lord, folks? When you wonder, can God still love you? Yes, he does love you. Even when you messed up. Even when you feel like the accursed thing. Even like you feel forbidden. Reading again, verse 11, And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord Yahweh recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee. Of the Lord, or Yahweh, God of Israel, unto whose wings thou art come 
to trust. And folks, we are going to find out about those wings in the next chapter, I believe it is, because it is powerful. This verse is a precursor to what's coming in chapter 3. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me, and for thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, thou thou I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. He's saying, Listen, I don't care what you think right now, I want you to let this one go right to the meat of my unharvested bar, right in the sheaves, right? The stuff that hasn't been pulled off yet. I want you to get right into, let her have the good stuff, man. Let her have the good stuff. And let, in verse 16, fall also some of thy handfuls of purpose for her and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So here he was like, you better take care of her. He wanted to make sure that she had all she needed. Boaz was in love, just like God, Jesus is in love with us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, as I said earlier, endured the cross despising the shame is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy of knowing that you were a precious gift. He was willing to go all the way. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned and set, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. If it's interesting, because if you actually look in Josephus's writings, the measurement was actually in according to Josephus' day. Now, obviously, she was long before Josephus was the time of Christ. But if the measurements were still about the same uh, in his time, it was about nine gallons. She went home stuffed. In verse nineteen, her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. Notice that her spirits have all of a sudden picked up. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kinsmen unto one of our next kinsmen. Oh boy, Naomi starts to see something powerful beginning to form as she understands that it was Boaz's field that Ruth had just so happened on. No, not a chance. The law of the Leverite marriage. Oh, yes. The Leverite 
marriage. The word lever is actually a Latin word, and it means husband's brother. There were three conditions to meet this law. You had to be a kinsman, you had to be able to perform, and you had to be willing to perform. But you did not have to do it. God was not forcing you to be a kinsman, redeemer. The law of the Leverite is taken actually from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 to 10. This is what it says. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of the brother which is dead, that his name should not be put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his husband's wife, then and let the brother's wife go up to the gate under the elders and say, my husband's brother refused to raise up unto his brother the name a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who hath his shoe loosed. Now, I don't know about you, but apparently that's some bad language back in the old day. You don't want to be known as the man with the loosed shoe. And so you didn't have to perform it, but it seems like there would be some shame put upon you for not following through on your God-given duty to raise up. And that was the key. You were not to raise the firstborn unto you. You were actually to raise the firstborn unto the one who died. And that would technically be Malon. If you remember, that is going to play a significant role as we get into the end of this book. So don't forget that because it is going to be mind-blowing when we get there. And I'm telling you, when this book culminates, it, it just still never ceases to absolutely explode the head. In verse 21, And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said Unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. Naomi was beginning to plan the trap for Boaz, for Ruth to be truly taken care of. Verse 23, so she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. If you remember the barley harvest, Passover, and then the wheat harvest, Pentecost. What is getting ready to take place as we go into the next program coming soon is going to blow your mind. We have an illegal event taking place, a Moabitess coming into the camp of Israel, not legal. A Moabitess living or marrying going to marry, excuse me, Boaz, 
an illegal marriage because she's forbidden. Then she gets put into the lineage of the Messiah. Folks, when you see God's provision that was made in the word of God and what's about to take place, I'm telling you, it's going to be unbelievable. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this. The law of the Leverite, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, folks, I'm telling you, he is coming. He is here already. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. He is about redeeming, but he is coming at the end of time very soon, and he's going to redeem this world from the curse of sin, and he is the only one that is worthy to open up the scroll that is sealed within and without, and it's by his blood that the whole world who have chosen to follow him shall be redeemed. Keep the faith. Keep looking up, folks. We are getting to the near end of this thing. This is Brother Frank on the Remnant Call saying to everybody, good night and shalom. Trumpet in Zion, someday on the mountain. Though a trumpet in Zion, someday on the mountain. Though a trumpet in Zion, someday on the mountain. Though a trumpet in Zion, someday on the mountain. Though a trumpet in Zion, someday on the mountain. Though